Hi, and welcome to this, the first podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. It is an absolute pleasure uh, to have you invite us into your car, onto your run, into your home, wherever you are. You're obviously someone who's interested in integrated care. Otherwise, you've just made a mistake and maybe um, click the wrong podcast link. Either way, we are here for you. Today is our first podcast, so we're going to do a lot of introductory stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about CFHA, what CFHA is and what it does. And we're going to let you know who we are, because ultimately you're going to invite us in into your listening experience if you really sort of gel with who we are and what we're about. So uh, first, a uh, quick primer for those of you who are not familiar with the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, uh, or CFHA as we, um, we call it. Uh, CFHA is a member-based organization. That means that we are a movement, a coalition of people who really care about whole person care. Uh, we bring behavioral health and medical physical health care together. We have folks all over the nation working in a variety of settings. Many of our folks work in primary care. Uh, we have folks working in emergency departments and specialty medical clinics. We have folks in family medicine, internal medicine. We have folks in hospitals. We even have members who are in payer systems, foundations, anybody and anyone who is interested in whole person care, bringing behavioral health and physical health together the way we think it should be. So that's who CFHA is, and as part of our mission, we really want to promote this idea, and this is why we're doing this podcast. And we've put together a great podcast team who you're going to meet uh, right now. Uh, I'll do a brief introduction, and then I'm going to have our podcast team let, let you know who they are. Uh, we've got Grace Wilson. She's a behavioral, uh, behavioral behaviorist at a family medicine residency program in Oklahoma City, where she's been uh, practicing and supervising for about uh, three and a half years. We've got Deepu George down in the very southern tip of Texas. Uh, behavioral Science Faculty at UT Rio Grande Valley School of Medicine. We've got Amber Gordon, um, who is at the very beginning of her career, just about to complete a master's uh, in medical family therapy at North Central University. And we've got Jeffrey Ring, a health psychologist out on the West Coast in Los Angeles, uh, who does a lot of healthcare consulting on the topic of integrated care. So as you can tell, we've got a breadth of experience and knowledge here, and our goal is to keep you entertained and informed. So uh, let's get started just with the basic introductions. Um, you know, let's start with Deepu. Deepu, tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're excited about being on this podcast today. Excellent. Um... So my name is Deepu George, and I am currently, uh, I serve as the Behavioral Science Faculty at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley School of Medicine's Department of Family and Community Medicine, and that is a mouthful to say. Uh, we are located in South Texas in a place called McAllen, Texas. So many folks consider San Antonio as South Texas, so just to give you reference, San Antonio is a good four hours north of from where we are. And just to give you another perspective of our unique geographic location, It'll probably take you 18 minutes to leave the country and possibly 18 hours or longer, depending on where you're driving to, to leave the state. So uh, you're really close to the border. Uh, you can almost call us like we're in the northern part of Mexico, literally. 
in my role, uh, I also serve as the um, PI for a project uh, for paper health into a few of our programs. And I continue to learn from my team every day. A uh, couple of lessons that I go back to reflect on pretty often is uh, I continue to improve my skills as a clinician and being part of a primary care team. Uh, I think one of the other things that I learn very mindfully on a day-to-day -day basis is how to be a better primary care team member. And one of the concepts that helped me do that is this idea called multi-directed partiality by Dr. Naj, who is the founder of Contextual Family Therapy. And um, doing this project also has taught me and my team that behavioral health consultation at the end of the day is a final product of a series of institutional and cultural decisions that we have all made. So I have a deep curiosity and appreciation for the larger forces at play that makes integrated behavioral health and its grand vision for efficient healthcare delivery. And part of my excitement to being part of this podcast is exactly that. Because I think we deal with a lot of complexity and the ability to chat about it, inform uh, other people and engage um, all of us in four different corners of the country and to hear conversations back from our audience would be a great learning tool for me and a learning experience. So I'm very excited to be here and very honored to be part of this team. Awesome. Thanks, Deepu. Deepu is going to give us a great perspective from the world of uh, resident training and uh, medical medical training and, and that sort of integration. Um, Grace, why don't you jump in and tell us what's going on in Oklahoma City? Sure. Well, I'm Grace Wilson. I am on faculty at a small family resi family medicine residency program here in Oklahoma City where I'm the behaviorist. Our listeners are probably a little more familiar with what a behaviorist in the family medicine does than the general person on the street. Um, but just in case you're not, I like to summarize it by saying that my role on the faculty is helping our residents with treating mental health, working with families, and and improving their patient communication. Um, that happens in lots of different ways in our training, but more and more it is becoming important to our physicians to do great work with their patients, not just in their diagnostic work, not just in their prescribing, but in their really human parts of the work and the connecting that we do. Um, in my role, I also cross-train. So I have a team of behavioral health interns who work under me who are learning to do uh, behavioral health treatment in a primary care environment. And then I have various other roles, um, like I have a, a passion for women's health and uh, particularly around pregnancy and pregnancy loss and infertility. So I'm able to serve on our maternal child ethics board for the hospital and just little side projects like that. Um, as you said earlier, I've been here about three and a half years um, and have we just uh, this past summer graduated the first class of residents that only knew me as their behaviorist. So it's been really interesting to be able to put my mark on the program um, and to kind of choose our focus for things. So I really love cross training because I like to say that my secret mission is to train uh, behaviorists who are ready to go out into the field and ready to operate from this whole person perspective with a real sensitivity and attention to physical problems and 
in a true like biopsychosocial spiritual model, but also to train physicians who go out and demand that they need behaviorists in their clinics. Um, so I kind of am uh, trying to water the roots of the healthcare system in Oklahoma and, and the, the future of integrated care here. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I've often um, thought to myself that, um, uh, you know, we, we want to train behavioral health providers that are uh, are so well trained in primary care, they could kind of be decent primary care providers. Um, right. And I'm and, hoping by the time I retire, I'll be, you know, about a fourth of a physician yeah, <laughs> with all exactly. of the learning that we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's really a, a great part of the work as well. Yeah. And, and and primary care providers who are, you know, by the time you're done training them, halfway decent, you know, uh, behavioral health consultants. So, <laughs> right. yeah, that's awesome. Great. So Awesome. All right. And next, uh, Amber. Amber, tell us a little bit about um, you as you, you're you in the final stretch, really, of your master's program. Yes. So um, very excited to be um, part of this. I was admittedly a little nervous about even um, putting my hat in the ring to be part of uh, this awesome podcast opportunity because I was like, maybe I don't have an ex- experience. I don't know what I'm doing, um, but I am very passionate and uh, one of the reasons I became very passionate about this field, um, as my fellow podcasters have already learned about me, is um, I had a personal experience with chronic illness. And uh, mostly it came down to me getting really mad with the fact that there was not really anyone who seemed to be treating me as a whole person. Um, I would go to support groups and people were having a very difficult time even finding a, a therapist and they were willing to pay out of pocket um, that actually had the knowledge to treat them um, as a patient, but then also as a person, um, you know, for the particular condition that I was going through, um, you know, people were getting feedback like, oh, well, you know, my therapist told me like, I just need to like get up earlier every day and have a morning routine, but how can you do that when you can't even get out of bed? Like they don't get it. Um, I'm like, okay, well, there has to be like people out there that realize that this is a problem. And I found the people, which is, you know, awesome. Um, so I actually already have um, a master's degree and then I'm going back um, basically to turn my MFT into a medical family uh, degree. So I'm actually finishing up my internship right now and I'm a couple months away from hopefully going into the world of employment, which Grace has so wonderfully primed for me and hopefully created some jobs with the uh, seeds that she has put out into the world. Nice. So I'm just really excited for this. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you get you get to be on a podcast and a job on the side. Is that how it's that's going to work? I, I that's kind. Of, I was kind of hoping that you know a little All bit. Right. And can, you know, it doesn't hurt to try, right? Networking yeah. very important. Podcasting as networking. I got it. Yeah, really good. All right, uh, Jeffrey Ring, uh, you are our cleanup hitter. All right. Well, I'll do my best. I am out here in uh, sunny Los Angeles, um, and I wanted to just say a word or two about you know why I'm a health psychologist. Um, uh, you know, kids are when they're young dream about being lots of things when they grow up. You know, doctors and teachers and engineers. And I actually dreamt that I wanted to become a Spanish-speaking psychologist as this guy, this white kid growing up in Santa Monica, California. Um, uh, and um, I, I'm pretty clear why I had that dream. The the first was that my um, 
my parents had uh, had gotten divorced. It was a really terrible, terrible and painful period um, of my life. My world had fallen apart. And um, fortunately, my mom took me to see a therapist. I remember it so well. This um, this lovely woman in her in her house um, on the canals in Venice. I remember uh, looking out at the water and the ducks going by, and she asks me how I'm doing. I just started to weep. And my whole you know family, as I knew it, everything I knew was a wreck. But you know that was a powerfully healing experience for me. And um, over time, at some point, I thought to myself, like, I want to be that guy. I want to be someone who can really help kids and families to, um, to heal up in the face of such kind of tragedy. So, so that was part of it. And then the other part was I, I hung out so much at my friend uh, Nikki's house up the street. His family was from uh, Chile, and I just loved the Spanish. I started to sort of just revel in uh, in uh, in hanging out with uh, with all of them. And uh, and then I had this idea as a teenager, like, what if I could become a Spanish speaking psychologist? It was like a, a gap analysis, right, about Los Angeles and this sense that I could really make a difference. So, um, so that's what I pursued. I kept studying psychology and Spanish for um, junior high, high school, college, uh, graduate school, and, and, and postdoc, actually. And um, I, I'm just grateful to say that my teenage dream came true. I had the wonderful, rich opportunity to work as a health psychologist in East Los Angeles, speaking Spanish in the family medicine residency for, for 20 years. Um, grateful, so grateful to be immersed in that very precious population. So grateful to know and work with um, you know such promising uh, uh, colleagues and uh, residents, future physicians. Um, and, and and now in my work, you know, in, in, in consulting is I just sort of take the lessons um, that I learned in primary care and hopefully bring them to other larger organizations. So um, I'm so happy, of course, to be here with uh, all of you today. Awesome. As you can tell as a listener, I, we could talk for hours here. We've got some awesome people, awesome stories. Um, I'll give you a brief introduction for myself, and then we'll just launch into our uh, second segment of the podcast here. So again, my name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the executive director of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Um, but that's not who I am. Um, who I am is uh, a Hispanic kid, grew up in Queens, New York. Um, and uh, I, 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 like Jeffrey, have a little bit of a, and like some of the others, have a little bit of a personal story of what, what I think primed me for integrated care. Um, essentially, I'm the child of two immigrant parents. Uh, my mother came from Colombia, so Jeffrey and I can certainly con converse in Spanish um, uh, pretty easily. Uh, and so she came when she was a, a teenager, and uh, my father uh, arrived in New York also as a teenager uh, from Puerto Rico. They met there, married very early on, and like many immigrant families, didn't have access to health care, or at least to health care insurance. And so my experience of health care was going to the emergency department. I went to Queens General Hospital whenever we got sick, whenever we needed anything, and we'd wait for about 8 to 10 hours. Uh, to get seen. Um, I didn't realize my parents, of course, were paying out of pocket um, at the time. Um, as a kid, you know, I didn't blink. That was just the way it was. But um, it, it, in retrospect, I realized the hardship that it was on my family uh, to not have that health insurance, that access to health insurance and health care. Um, and it began the journey for me to be very reflective about um, uh, working with underserved populations and lessening that burden. And 
uh, sort of dovetailing with that really grew my um, just passion for integrated care. That is the idea that, you know, the real way to, to really work with individuals is to address everything that they bring into the exam room and not compartmentalize it, not make insurance a barrier, uh, not make different provider training uh, and, and specialization a barrier, but rather bridge that gap um, because the folks that we work with, particularly in underserved settings, just don't need additional hurdles to jump through. Um, and so that's been my passion. It's been expressed by my work as a clinician for over 17 years now, uh, working in federally qualified health centers, um, and now my work through the association promoting this as a movement. So I am super excited, super stoked um, to do this, uh, just because I love talking integrated care. I'm really passionate about you know, uh, really spreading the message of integrated care to the nation so that this really becomes the standard of care for all, but particularly, I think, for the most vulnerable among us. So, um, yeah, super excited. We've got a great team here for you. All right, team, um, let's switch gears here real quick. Um, being mindful of the time here, we, we, we wanted to kind of make this fun as well. So we're going to ask each other uh, just a simple, fun question, sort of off the wall, off the cuff. So um, each member is going to ask each uh, member, and we'll just limit it to one fun question. Um, so uh, I will ask the first question of Amber, all right? And so this will just give you a quirky insight into Amber. So Amber, my question to you is, what has been your best ever binge watching experience? What show and why? Man, that that's actually a tough one because um, as somebody who was really sick for three years, <laughs> I spent a lot of time watching Netflix. Like I'm an expert champion connoisseur of Netflix. <laughs> it's it's honestly, I think I should be able to add it to my resume. Um, but I would have to say recently one of my favorites is a Netflix original called Sensate because um, it's like these regular people that figured out they have superpowers. I'm not going to give too much away, but it's it's really, really good. And then going along with that, I just finished uh, season two of Stranger Things. It took me a lot longer than it used to when I was in bed all day. But um, yeah, but I, I do really enjoy my Netflix <laughs> All right. Well, I, I officially think that adding that to a resume, well, it probably isn't a good idea, but I think it should be. <laughs> I'll just, just throw that out. Save there. it for small talk at the interview. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, uh, Deepu, why don't you ask Grace what you want to know about her? All right, Grace. So if you had one wish, what would you use it for? And I know you're clever, so I'm going to specify that it cannot be for another wish. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is actually really easy for me to answer right now uh, because of just life circumstances. We have four small children aged two and under. So we have triplets that just turned one last week. And so I would like a button that I could push to press pause, not to pause their growth because I'm really happy that they're growing and getting older, but just so I could sleep. It would be wonderful to just be able oh, to my. sleep. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Oh, all yeah. right. Wow. Yeah. We all, all parents everywhere feel your pain and we're there with you. <laughs> 
All right, great. And then um, I think we have uh, Deepu. You're also asking Jeffrey, so go ahead. All right, Jeffrey. So, is uh, if you could have dinner with anyone or get the chance to get a chance to interview somebody historical or living, who would you choose, and how would this interaction change your life? You know what? I um, I, I like to have dinner with the um, president, uh, the current president. I, I feel like I have a, a strong capacity for influence and passion and to express, <laughs> um, you know, and share sort of different worldviews. And, and so I'd love to take that opportunity to really try some um, uh, facilitate self-reflection and re- re- facilitate some, um, you know, sort of uh, empathy development and uh, <laughs> com- compassion and so forth. So anyway, that's uh, that's the first thing that occurs to me, Deepu. Um, can, can you make that happen? Should we uh, reservations oh in D.C.? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, took, it took less than uh, 20 minutes to get political. <laughs> <laughs> it's healthcare. I mean, like, what, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to be a fly on the wall for that empathy training part. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sounds like you're feeling curious. Good. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be a miracle. All right. Uh, All right, Jeffrey, uh, your question of Deepu. Yeah, I have never been to McAllister, uh, Texas. Can you tell me, Deepu, what do you do down there? uh, What's your uh, wellness and self-care and community immersion? What's it like? Ooh. You got me stumped there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, there, I, actually, on Saturday, I just I, I started running last year, so I did my uh, fifth 10K on Saturday. So there's a pretty active uh, community starting in January through before, you know, like uh, there are times by 9 o'clock, it's like 80 degrees outside, 80, 85, 90 sometimes. So before that heat comes in, there's a lot of outdoor activities. The beach is about an hour and 15 minutes from where I am, the South Padre Island. So you don't want to come there during March, during spring break. Uh, in fact, actually, healthcare providers, especially in the roles that we do, I think BHCs or behavioral health consultants on the beaches would be good because there's a lot of kids ODing and other things. So it may be timely interventions and maybe some prevention <laughs> that we can do oh, there. Geez. MAT on the beach. That's right. <laughs> and then... Um, we do have a beautiful performance art center that was built uh, recently, like two years ago, and they have amazing shows and things that come. And if you're into Mexican cuisine and real authentic uh, food, there's a lot of options here. Um, there's some amount of Tex-Mex and others. Um, and then, believe it or not, we have five vegan restaurants down here. But I'll just put that in there. Cool, cool. All right, Amber, you get to ask me your question. Okay, so I would like to know, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh, man. Oh, all right. Well, my kids would make me say, actually, um, uh, and this is going to sound so horrible, uh, but it's uh, uh, Alfredo Fettuccini uh, from the Olive Garden. Um, which is horrible because it's the least authentic Italian food you could probably ever eat. Um, but they love it, and I have a sick love of it as well. Um, uh, my wife hates going there, and so uh, we we basically I just take the kids when we, we're going to go, and she does something else. So, yeah. 
Is that an all-you-can-eat deal there? For no, no, it's not an all-you-can-eat. It's just very bad food. Very bad food. That so are, are you choosing that for the, the continuing bonding experience with your kids or because you really do have a secret love for the inauthentic Italian cuisine? I, you know, I, you, you may be onto something with the bonding thing. I think it's sort of like the thing that I do with them when my wife is not there sort of thing. You know, it's our thing. So I don't know. Yeah. But I've, I read it. Well, if you can. It's, it's not the tastiest food in the world. So kind of, you know, kind of silly, but it is what it is. <laughs> Life is a dad. All right. Well, great. All right. Now, each week we're going to be mixing through different segments. Um, Obviously, today we're doing a lot of introductory stuff, but one of our recurring segments is going to be um, going to try to connect what's happening in the news to the world of integrated care and healthcare at large. And so we'll pick a couple of news items, chat about those news items. Um, and so cue the music. This is our in the news segment. So in the news, I'm going to uh, start us off here. Um, you know, this is only uh, interesting to you, you geeks of integrated care and healthcare out there. So um, I, I think you'll find this pretty interesting. So um, recently, SAMHSA uh, published some guidelines um, uh, related to the, the um, distribution of, of, of patient records, essentially, uh, with substance abuse information in them. This has been a longstanding issue, as we all know, because um, it, it's, all, it's been a little bit confusing um, whether you can disclose um, uh, whether someone is, uh, has an alcohol or substance use problem and whether that um, uh, can be put into a medical record and then disclosed uh, with patient um, uh, consent, of course, um, freely, just as you would uh, medical information. Um, and so uh, some guidelines were put out. They're sort of guidelines related to 42 CFR Part 2. That's just the, the name of the federal law governing confidentiality for people uh, seeking treatment for substance use disorders. Now, the important thing is this is really just covers uh, programs that are funded by the federal government. So it's not necessarily uh, to everyone. But the reason I, I kind of brought this up was because I got an email the other day from the North Carolina Primary Care Association, um, and it had uh, it had some information relative to this, relative to their uh, information exchange. And this is really interesting because everybody's going to interpret this slightly differently, um, which is the interesting part of federal laws. Some institutions will choose to be more liberal and say, yep, this gives us permission to share information um, freely, just as we would any other medical information or within the constraints of any other medical information. So it's not freely, like you're just going out on the street and yelling patient names and that they're you know, substance abusers. But um, some institutions will be more conservative. And it was interesting to see where this health information exchange that North Carolina is, is uh, uh, starting to use called North Carolina Health Connects. And I'm going to read to you here their interpretation of what this new law means and you guys out there in, in the world can kind of do with it what you want because your institutions may do something very different with them. So here's a question that they had on the email. Are there restrictions on submitting substance abuse data to North Carolina Health Connects? 
That's the health information exchange. So basically, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically just a central database that um, many, many providers across the state will feed their data into. So the answer to that question is, are there restrictions? Is basically, yes. And unfortunately, quite a lot of restrictions. So it says, you cannot generally disclose data to a health information exchange if the data would, one, identify a patient as an alcohol or substance abuser, and two, if that data was obtained by an alcohol or substance abuse program for treating, diagnosing, or making a referral for the patient's alcohol or substance abuse problem. So at least I interpret that to be, boy, just if, if a medical record contains any mention of alcohol or substance abuse and that data, um, it's going to be obtained for, for, for treatment, diagnosis, or referral. That's really pretty broad. It kind of means if you are funded by the federal government in any way, uh, which perhaps could include MAT programs, then that means you wouldn't be able to disclose that information uh, to the health information exchange. It does have a permission, provision for emergencies, etc. But other than that, it looks pretty, pretty restrictive. Doesn't seem to be terribly helpful. I'm curious as to your quick thoughts, guys. Yeah, these are the barriers, right, to care. I mean, it's a tough balance. Of course, we want to honor, um, you know, confidentiality, but these barriers to care, I think, really, um, uh, I mean, it's it's not only sort of the human side um, barrier of, you know, who do we tell and when do we tell and how do we tell it, um, but but it's also the inability really for um, health uh, information, uh, um, electronic medical records to be able to talk with one another um, and the lack of access to information at point of care as needed. I, I worry about both of these things. There's a recursive problem, too, because when we put extra protections on mental health or substance abuse records, we do it because of part of the stigma and the extra protections and privacy that people want. But I think also when we put those extra protections, it reinforces that stigma in a way by saying that these records are, are different or more private or more special than our other kinds of you know traditionally biomedical health problems. And so it's it's kind of a, a difficult problem, though, because people want to have more privacy around them. And because of the stigma, there's more, you know, repercussions if that gets out. But then by keeping it extra private, we also reinforce the stigma. So I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's just part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. I, I agree with Grace. I realize that, you know, there is a lot of a catch-22 situation kind of going on Um I have personally done a lot of work with um, people struggling with addiction and it seems that, you know, you want to just bust down those walls and be like, you know what, like this is a, you know, medical condition and should be treated just the same, but you also need to balance that out with how society is, um, you know, viewing that individual and the kickback that they're going to get from whatever other people are going to think. But I do think that, you know, this could possibly be a small step towards, breaking that stigma. It's just, you know, almost the brave sacrificial souls at the front lines that are really going to have to uh, pay the price for the people that would follow. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Neftali, my news item is connected to yours. I wanted to share, if I yeah, may. Go right ahead. Um, in uh, less than one decade, the number of emergency room visits involving alcohol 
consumption have increased 61%. They've gone from 3 million to almost 5 million. And the total cost increase of uh, 272%, it's gone from 41 billion um, cost of care to 15.3 billion dollars of care for alcohol-related issues in the emergency room. Um, This is really quite an explosion and um, intensity. And I think it really does speak to the important superhero role that behavioral health can play in taking on this kind of social economic problem. Um, Behavioral health integration into primary care is an extraordinary opportunity for uh, early uh, identification, treatment, and prevention. The the kind of spreading of ESPERT, right? This idea of screening and brief intervention and referral for treatment. Um, And I think all of us have worked in really helping physicians and other healthcare colleagues enhance their um, assessment and counseling skills. Um, The the role for motivational interviewing um, training to really meet patients where they are and their readiness to change. Um, It it also makes me think about this idea, too, about how we, all of us, turn down our um, or the intensity of our bias and our assumptions that we make about people with um, alcohol issues. So, um, so all of that, Neftali, connected to these other barriers of medical records and uh, and confidentiality, um, it's making for a true crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's we, we have a small cadre of folks within our association that are in emergency departments doing this work, and. Uh, my wife is an emergency medicine physician, actually, as well, and she can certainly attest to the fact that uh, substance abuse issues comprise a big percentage of what you see, whether it's the substance abuse itself or also the uh, sequelae of substance abuse, accidents, violence um, of all sorts, et cetera. So, yeah, it is a really that's that's a huge number, though. I didn't realize it was that, you know, that dramatic an issue. And my heart goes out to your wife and other folks working in the emergency room. They face the the issue head on, but they really are not the best ones poised to take on all of the yeah. social determinants, all of the other life challenges and trauma and and, and um, realities that uh, that that these folks are, are are facing along with the and are connected to the substance use. Yeah, it really is a great argument for that model of integration that you're talking about, Naftali, where there's behavioral health in every level of the healthcare. I mean, absolutely more primary care and more expert and attention to that prevention, but having people in the ER, because that's where our patients show up, especially our patients, like you were speaking to earlier, who have so many different barriers to healthcare and maybe can't get in with a PCP on the day that they need it, or they've had some kind of accident. And so we need to be meeting people where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I agree with Grace, the earlier point of like the recursive patterns that, you know, these kind of conversations and laws that can um, put sort of protection, but at the same time perpetuating the stigma um, in um, a lot of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy related work. There is this whole idea of destructive normality. So, you know, we sort of expect people to be unbroken and satisfied and happy and living meaningful lives every day. Whereas we know the norm of sort of human condition is uh, a continuous journey of loss and learning to live with different things that come our way. One of the things that I remind our residents uh, when they work with substance abuse and related issues, they, you know, we put a lot of restrictive rules on 
um, patients when we're treating them and working with them sort of thinks like, you know, if you come come back for a visit and you're high, then we may not see you, et cetera. And, you know, we haven't really developed systematic responses to those issues. But I remember one of our psychiatrists uh, sort of saying, you know, if your patient came back and his blood sugar is uncontrolled, you don't necessarily deny him an appointment and you don't send him away. If uh, a patient comes back and their blood pressure is not managed or their lifestyle hasn't changed and the weight has increased, we don't say, I can't see you this visit. We're not punishing them for, um, you know, sort of the compliance related issues. Whereas for substance use and abuse, we may sort of have these higher standards as if it's a, a true moral issue, whereas it could be a, a behavioral and adherence and uh, psychological motivational issue rather than seeing it as, as um, you know, great big evil as such. Um, so I wonder, helping healthcare redefine how they approach these symptoms uh, and, and sort of being very primary care about it, just uh, going about it in a systematic way, uh, I think can release some of those tensions and open up um, opportunities for people to get healed in in the long run not quick solutions yeah absolutely you know i've often described that as really treating substance abuse as a chronic um as we do chronic disease you know and just having removing all the labels and all the judgment components it doesn't mean we don't have boundaries i mean i think good boundaries are also a part of what we can provide in primary care but um as you said it's really just thinking very differently about the underlying disorder so that we don't actually increase the number of boundaries. Right. There is, um, there is a great book that came out two years ago called The Unbroken Brain, um, which really talks about the um, latest uh, neuroscience evidence and based on brain studies, et cetera, on addiction um, and sort of like redefining addiction as um sort of a brain-related disorder as such and self-regulation-related issues. So it's a, it's a great book. Uh, there's a great interview of the author on NPR. Obviously, I didn't read the book. I listened to a whole bunch of podcasts to get my knowledge in small bite sizes. <laughs> You're the Cliff Notes guy. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Amber, what's your In the News segment? Um, so my In the News segment actually was... A little bit. I didn't get to uh, post it on our our feed because I was actually pretty down and out this week with the the flu. Um, but I was curious because actually where I live, um, the big uh, pharmaceutical company is uh, Merck. Like everybody works for Merck. Everyone's you know spouse works for Merck. It's it's a really big company around here, um, and. I uh, found out that they are actually going to be launching the uh, Gardasil vaccine for infants. And um, that was, you know, something I had read several articles about. And I had a couple of my clients that had came in um, and were asking, you know, basically for help with making decisions. And I was just, you know, kind of wanted to put that out to you know, my fellow podcast host says, you know, how do you guys walk that line between helping to direct patient care and support it, um, especially when it comes to, you know, really big, uh, potentially life-altering decisions? Well, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, yikes, I can answer that as a dad. I mean, I had to take my 14-year-old <laughs> sons 
to start getting, I think they were around 14. And um, wow, you have to have these like important conversations about why we're having a series of three uh, injections. It's And it's you know linked to issues of um, sexuality and sexual behavior and risk, but it, it's really for things that presumably, hopefully, are like way far, far ahead in their um, future. Um, it's also about um, being a responsible male and protecting female partners. Uh, I, I don't know. All, all I can say is that um, uh, it was hard enough to have that conversation with 14-year-olds. I can't imagine how you do it with a toddler of, you know, age two. So, Well, you know, one of the things that I, I was reflecting on yesterday with my team is that we were trying to figure out how to sort of uh, – market PCBH to our leadership team here so that we can push for some system level initiatives. But uh, we were thinking about barriers of communication. We said that I, the, one of our challenges is a PCBH the idea is deceptively simple and it doesn't get, uh, so you know, when people hear it, they're like, oh yeah, we should be doing this and this is how we should practice. I think even with like the vaccines and other solutions that come out, they're deceptively simple solutions for a health care issue that may affect us later in life, but it opens up a Pandora's box of emotions and moral values and discussions and probably push parents and kids uh, to have these conversations in a very unprepared way. So if that's what's happening in our families, I can't imagine these conversations are any more refined in the healthcare situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it, it just, again, calls for the importance of an integrated care team, because right. um, how does the team organize itself around having these conversations? Right. I mean, how do you get because it's not just uh, it's not just the phys- physician or the provider sometimes answering questions. It's the medical assistant. It's the nurse. It's the behavioral health staff. And so I think a big function of integrated care is actually just organizing the team so that, A, you have the same information and you're giving accurate information, and B, that you're prepared to have these um, more in-depth conversations because it's more than just, you know, a simple injection. It's it's not that. It is laden with all of this social, personal, sexual um, stuff, and you're going to have to have the conversation. How do you do that in a, even from an operational standpoint? You know, how do you do that in the context of a 15 minute visit? You know, a uh, 15 minute primary care visit. You know, so uh, yeah, that's an awesome uh, example, I think, of where the care team organization and communication is super duper key to make the experience for a parent like myself better. Um, I, I also had my um, my middle school girls go in for their Gardasil vaccines. I think we're actually in between shots right now uh, as we speak. So, um, and my, my provider did a decent job, but I, I know I left there kind of wondering, oh, you know, I, I had this question. I forgot to ask this question. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would have been nice to have someone kind of take a little bit of time with me. So uh, we're coming. This may be another discussion for another day. Yeah, I was going to say it might be another discussion for another day, but we can just kind of bookmark a conversation about shared decision making and the 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 tools that um, we as behavioral health folks can really help our um, practitioner colleagues to develop, which really present the pros and cons and the data and all the information that can help folks come to a uh, hopefully wise decision they're comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are planning on this being an hour long podcast. Of course, we're coming up on the edge of it. But uh, Grace, what's your in the news item? 
My, I, I, mine connects pretty well to what we were just talking about, about the complexities of value conflicts that arise between patients and providers, potentially, or even within a family. Um, I just wanted to kind of draw attention to the news that the Department of Health and Human Services is developing this division of conscience and religious freedom um, within their Office for Civil Rights, and it's designed to um, the their, their stated purpose is to protect providers who are asked to do procedures that conflicts with their own religious or moral um, decisions for themselves. And I, I don't really want to comment on, you know, the, the goodness or, or otherwise of this division. Um, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I think it should be stated that there can be you know, there's there's some problems potentially with people who have, um, you know, more marginalized and oppressed groups um, who need access to like women's health care, transgender rights or things like that. And it raises a lot of potential for value conflicts. But that's the piece that I wanted to hone in on that this there's these conflicts that arise between provider and patient potentially or between various providers or even within the patient and their family members um and i think that you know offices and protections are really great but a lot of what needs to happen is at the ground level of having conversations about these differences having conversations about values and that decision making and i think that we're really poised uniquely, like we were just saying, as behavioral health providers or as an interdisciplinary team to have really thoughtful conversations about those differences and the decision-making that happens. So it's not just a black or white, all or nothing. I do this, I don't do this because circumstances are so varied. Um, And I think that there's a lot that we can do to help facilitate those conversations um, when there are value differences that arise. I think that is so important. And, you know, Jeff, when you said one of the things that you wanted to do is uh, sit down with the president and have a direct conversation with him about different things that are going on. I think that is such a valuable perspective and skill that we as behavioral uh, health providers or behavioral science faculty or just behavioralists in primary care can bring is to be this reflecting board for people to consider why they make the decisions that they make. I've had residents who, we have a transgender clinic. I've had residents who uh, come up to me after the rotation and sort of talk about how difficult it was for them to be there because it conflicted with their values. And I think, uh, you know, through interactions with multiple mentors and, and examples, I feel lucky that I'm able to have that kind of a presence. I don't know if I'll always be uh, that objective. My prayer is that I am. Um, at least not objective. I think I was willing to go in the trenches with them. And I think that's one of the things that we bring to the table for these conversations and getting patients the help that they need at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it's sort of, this is really the magic of integrated care. It's really that by bringing in team members that know how to create a space to have these conversations, particularly in busy environments that don't naturally provide these spaces, that we provide uh, uh, meaningful and efficient ways for these sort of conversations to happen um, so that it results, hopefully, in patient care that is, in fact, patient-centered. 
Um, but that also cares for the care team and cares for the issues and the struggles that they have. And it, it's just fascinating to me how many times what, what's happening socially and politically in our world comes into the exam room. Um, it, it, it could be, you know, racial, ethnic issues going on in the community. It could be issues on gun violence and what we talk about in a, you know, PEDS well visit. Um, right. You know, I mean, in issues of immigration um, and immigration status and the impact of, of folks coming in who are undocumented uh, seeking care or hesitant to seek care because they're afraid that we're going to call INS, you know. So... Mm-hmm. It's all these issues that come up, but we create this space, and that space is really super important to both keep providers and care teams from burning out, and obviously providing good patient care. So this is this might be as uh, to use Jeffrey's terminology here, another bookmark for us to kind of come back to how we create this space for for our care teams. All right, did we get everybody's in the news item, or am I losing track here? Who didn't go? I didn't go. Oh, Deepu, we... sorry. All right, well. Uh... It, I think uh, mine sort of dovetails into some of the, the uh, last few conversations that we had. I One of my residents sent me an article uh, by a family physician named Pamela Wibble, who wrote on in the Washington Post, what I've learned from my tally of 757 doctor suicides. And so one of the issues uh, that she raises is the little attention and uh, resources and sort of conversation around physician uh, challenges around suicide and and she's been tracking the number of suicides she has a personal registry and she gave a talk she has a TEDx talk she also has a article that she wrote called when doctors commit suicide it's often hushed up and I started uh, reading through she made a list of things that she has sort of picked up uh, so you know she says things like high doctor suicide rates have been reported since 1858 Many doctors have lost a colleague to suicide. Uh, we lose way more men than women. Um, you know, lots of doctors um, hurt themselves or do self-harm in hospitals. And a couple of things that really uh, struck me is family members of doctors who have killed themselves are also at high risk. Uh, patient deaths hurt doctors, even if the patient death was not related to something that they did. Um, then you know, I'm in a training environment, and so it talks about academic distress. Um, and then another interesting fact was that assembly line medicine kills doctors. So you can have com- meaningful visits for complex patients in 15-minute increments. And she was also making the point that words such as burnout are often employed by medical institutions to shift blame to doctors for their emotional distress while deflecting the attention from unsafe working conditions. But I thought about the value of, I think it sort of ties back to the space. Um, Of course, behavioral health consultants are there to drive the population health mission and reach more people and sort of keep the panel healthy. But I also think by being in these settings, I think we have the skills and most of us, I believe, come with the mindset of wanting to be curious and explorative on things that are happening to our providers, per se. And creating space to tap into that, I think, is a big mission for integrative behavioral health. One of the things that I hope we can do as an organization in the future is to really understand the impact of integrative behavioral health 
on physician well-being and sort of going after the fourth, uh, you know, the quadruple aim, the fourth aim of provider wellness and what um, organizations like CFHA can contribute to that. Yeah, that's outstanding. In fact, you know, I, I will go so far as to say that I think when all is said and done at the end of my career, the thing, the biggest impact that uh, integrated care will have had on the health system is actually on the health and well-being of the care teams, in, you know, including approximately the, the medical providers. Um, I really believe that. I mean, that, that's been my experience over time. I've, I've, I know we've impacted, you know, thousands of patients, but frankly, um, some of the biggest impact have been the providers. Yeah, and I, I like to thank Jeff for an idea that, you know, he gave me at the last CFHA meeting. Um, one of the things that he talked about was um, having meetings with residents who've just lost a patient, whether it was under their care or if it was transferred to their care, and having those conversations. And so... I've been pursuing that idea here, and I had a chat with uh, one of our senior residents here who sent me this article. And uh, so I meet with residents individually, but I think we, we're trying to make that a programmatic response that anytime somebody does pass away under their care, that uh, I am somehow alerted and that we either go to the, the, the inpatient side and sort of have a debrief um, and sort of make a space available for people to even just say a few words about it. Oh, thank you, Deepu. I'm so gratified to hear that you've breathed life in, into that. Uh, I just want to make a plug for the children's book. I don't know if any of you have read The Heart and the Bottle yeah. uh, by Oliver Jeffers. It's extraordinary, and it's really well worth sharing with your residents. And I won't give it away, but I, I will say that the point here um, that, 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 that I think you're making so beautifully, Deepu, is that if after a loss, we don't stop and reflect, feel, grieve, experience, manage it somehow, um, if we just turn our back on it, well, we'll feel better for the moment. But if you don't really address it, you, um, you will not be able to, you won't feel the sadness, but you will also not be able to feel joy in life. You pay, we pay a big price when we turn our back on um, what are real life trauma and issues and tragedies and, um, and emotionally laden loss. So I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly, our role to be able to nurture and foster that kind of um, gentle, supported self-reflection is essential. Well, we are coming up here at the end in Deepu. Uh, being that you uh, brought us into this uh, heavy topic, can you bring <laughs> us out with a little bit of inspiration? Um, we're going to have this uh, segment be our final segment of each of our podcasts, Inspiration for the Road. We want you to feel encouraged, uh, strengthened, uh, part of a community. So, Deepu, take us out. Yeah, just remind me to go first next time. So I don't... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, based on our podcast and our intention and the movement as such, I thought uh, this quote was fitting. This is a quote from Miriam Williamson from her book, A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. And uh, this line is famously uh, said in the movie Coach Carter. Uh, so I'll read that out as uh, we end this in our first pro podcast. 
Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Deepu, that is absolutely awesome. A great way to end our first podcast. Thank you so much to my fellow podcasters. Why don't you guys say a quick goodbye to the audience? Goodbye, audience. All right. Thanks for joining us. Great. Uh, just Bye. a few reminders. Oh, sorry, Jeff, say goodbye. <laughs> Farewell. Farewell. <laughs> yeah, so just a few reminders here as we end. Um, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Join us again in a month. We are our plan is to put these out on a monthly basis. We'll be probably towards the end of each month. You can check us out online at integratedcarenews.com. It's our new website for news sources. So you can go there, read our blogs, catch up on the podcast, catch up on some videos, etc. So that's integratedcarenews.com. You can also catch the sound co- uh, the uh, podcast on SoundCloud and eventually on iTunes. Um, And then last but not least, keep an eye out for our call for proposals for our conference coming up in October. Our next annual conference is in Rochester, New York. It's going to be an awesome conference. If you want to present, call for proposals will be coming out on February 1st. For more information, just keep up to date with integratedcareconference.com. So we make it easy for you to find us. Integratedcareconference.com for the conference stuff. Integrated Care News for all the news and media stuff. And then, of course, our main website, cfha.net, for all the community community information you need about us. So, once again, thank you so much for listening. On behalf of Grace Wilson, Deepu George, Amber Gordon, Jeffrey Ring, I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. Thanks for listening. <laughs>